This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Now let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Hi, buddy. <laughs> All righty, Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 6 through 11 today. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you here this morning. Hey, um, when you are amazed and overwhelmed by something, it moves you to action, doesn't it? Let me explain what I mean by this. Um, This is so going to peg me as a fantasy guy. And I'm not, but uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's it's good. It's good. It's a great story. You guys um, hopefully have seen the movie or for sure have read the books. I've never read the books. Uh, <clears throat> so Narnia, right, is under a when you show up in the story, right? Narnia is under a frozen curse from the White Witch. Aslan, who's the rightful king, has left for a while, and in his absence, he hasn't returned yet, in his absence, the white witch has come, and she's put a, a frozen curse. The whole entire land is under is winter. In fact, in, they say it's always winter, but never Christmas. What a depressing thought. Um, and so, like, it's just terrible. People are freezing. It's cold. Everybody's sad. But what's interesting is, in the story, some strange things start to happen, right? So, some birds start to sing, or, and grass starts to grow, and some treacherous, treacherous hearts start to turn from their ways. And it's increasingly clear as you move through the story that Aslan's reign is starting to come back. The, the white witch is losing her grip. She's losing her power. And every time this happens, there's this phrase that people use, the characters use in this, in this story, and they say this. They say, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And you know what? They're amazed, and, it, and in the story, it moves them to action, right? They start responding because they see this amazing work of Aslan on the move. I want to tell you, oh, well, it, spoiler alert, uh, Aslan in the series is intentionally the Christ figure. C.S. Lewis wrote it that way. He is Jesus in the land of Narnia. And I want to tell you this morning, church, that Aslan is on the move. Amen. Amen. Let me give you some things hopefully to amaze you. I just read this week from uh, an article about this, uh, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity just did a, another big study. They estimate that evangelicals and Protestants will grow 50% by 2050. The numbers of that are this. Right now, there are 1 billion 
billion with a B, evangelicals and Protestants in the world, by 2050, that will be 1.5 billion. And you know where it's happening? In places like El Salvador, in places like Algeria. Let me tell you about Algeria. It's the most populous Muslim country in the world. There are more people living there than any other Muslim country. In 2019, the government launched a public assault against Protestant Christianity. Um, you have to be registered as a church there to be a church, and they've registered less than 50 churches. In fact, several churches have been closed indefinitely. There's many pastors that have been detained by the police, and Christians now are receiving continual threats. Christians are tied to these churches from their own neighbors and their own community. But over the last decade in Algeria, professing Christians have grown from 10,000, ready for this, to a half million. If you're doing math, that's a 5,000% increase. Aslan is on the move. And, and I want you to be amazed because here's what happens. When we're amazed at God's work, at God's kingdom work, we're going to move. And that's what we're going to find in our text today because God is on a mission. Did you know that? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, together as the Trinity are on the mission to build God's kingdom, to save people. And what happens when 12 men are revealed this mission and they see it and their eyes are open to God's work, to the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, what happens to these men is they move and they're moved to action and their lives are changed. And do you know that we're here today because of what these 12 men witnessed? The world was forever changed because God opened these men's eyes to his saving work. And we see what happens when hearts are captive by God's kingdom work. Here's what I want for you to walk away with this morning. This is what we're going to be after is I want you to live amazed by God's kingdom work. I want you to live amazed by God's kingdom work. Because we're going to see his kingdom work revealed in the text this morning, what happens to the disciples. And it's going to and the trajectory is going to go through the rest of the book of Acts, and it goes through the rest of history to where we are today. Now, Adam last week uh, introduced the book of Acts to us. We read the first five verses and, and studied that. And if you remember, um, at this point of Acts, we're kind of in a transition, right? The book of Acts is part two of a two-part series, the first part being the book of Luke, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ while he's on the earth up through his death and resurrection. And now we're transitioning and we're getting to where Jesus is going to hand off the mission, okay? And he's going to say, okay, I've done this work. Now you go testify. And that's what the book of Acts is about. We're at the beginning stage of the church, kind of like a preamble right now at the beginning of the book of Acts is preamble to the church. But I want us to see is that when we live amazed by God's work, so we're going to see, we're going to respond. We will. And we're going to respond in three different ways. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we do that, I want to pray for us real quick. God, you are doing amazing things now, and you have been doing amazing things throughout eternity in your work in saving sinners who deserve nothing less than hell, and we want to leave here amazed by what you're doing, we want to be changed, we want to be different and respond because of what you've done. I pray that you will do that in our hearts and our lives this morning, that what happens here will change us. 
We know you can through the power of your spirit. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so three ways that we will respond when we're amazed by God's kingdom work. Uh, the first is this, is trust the Father's plan. Trust the Father's plan. We get that from verses 6 and 7, Acts chapter 1. Hopefully your Bibles are still there. Let's look at the text together. Um, again, Luke writes this. So when they had come together, speaking of the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So we have the disciples asking a question here. Now let, let me catch you up a little bit to why, where this question's coming from, right? Um, imagine being the disciples, right? And you've just spent three years with Jesus. He chose you. He said, hey, I want you to follow me. And he's teaching you. He's teaching about the kingdom. He's helping you see all these amazing truths. And we have a ton of his teachings. You can go back and see what were the disciples being taught. And, and they're coming to realize, man, this guy is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. All of our hopes and our dreams are coming to fruition. And then something happens. In less than a week, the nation of Israel goes from, yay, our Messiah, to crucify him. And the disciples watch this man that they come to love be murdered. Imagine watching all your hopes and dreams and maybe as he's being carrying the cross, like, okay, now, now there's something, something's going to come out of left field. He's going to do it now. He's not, and, and each, each step it gets closer and closer to death and then all of a sudden it happens and he dies. Imagine the weight of crushing defeat and they all ran, right? They were so scared, so disappointed. And then three days later, the unbelievable happens. He comes back to life, and you see it with your own eyes. You're like, oh my goodness, this, this guy's alive. Jesus is alive. The person that I believe he's the Messiah. Hey, that's amazing news. He really is the Messiah. He defeated death. This is exciting times. And so over the next 40 days, this risen Savior is starting to teach the disciples and open their eyes to all the Old Testament, all the things it was telling them, how it was like, oh yeah, that's how I see how it was talking about you, Jesus. And, then he's, and he tells us, Adam pointed this out last week, he's teaching them about the kingdom, about his coming reign over all things. And it's exciting times. Now, 40 days is not an accident, by the way. You go back and look at scripture of all the times that 40 days is mentioned. It's a time of preparation whether it's Moses or Elijah or Jesus in the wilderness, he's preparing his disciples intentionally. And they knew those Old, Old Testament promises in Israel, uh, to Israel, right? From Daniel and Isaiah and Zechariah. Those Old Testament promises, I mean, they knew those things like we know the Star-Spangled Banner and the Pledge of Allegiance. It was their national identity, not just their national identity, it was their religion and their family history all wrapped up into one big bundle. They knew it all. And they knew that the Old Testament talked about the world would be saved, but it would start with Israel. So they're putting these pieces together. The strings are being attached, right? So you look in the, like, the conspiracy theorists, like all the yarn. All the yarn, like, oh, it all makes sense. And they're getting it. And so you get to this question, and we shouldn't be surprised by this question, right? It's a very legitimate, logical question. You would ask the same thing, right? The Messiah is risen, standing in front of us, talking about the kingdom. He's defeated death. So the question logically would be, 
Okay, so is it now? And what does he say? No, first of all, notice what he doesn't rebuke them for. Does he rebuke them for desiring the kingdom to come? No. Their desires were in the right place. But he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons. It's, it's about the when everything will happen. Now, this isn't the first time he's taught the disciples this. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was talking about the last days and when things were going to happen and how everything was going to go down. And the disciples were standing there listening to him. And he says this in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. This is a reoccurring theme. You're not supposed to know, but there's just this excitement like, hey, we want to know when. And he says, you don't need to know. But he doesn't end it there. He's Jesus and he loves them. And he grounds it in a little theology 101. What do I mean by that? Look at this. He says, it's not for you to know times or season that who? The Father has fixed by his own authority. So this is God's plan, right? It, the times and seasons are fixed. It's his plan. It's unchanging. It's unmoving. He's got it. It's in place. Don't worry about it. And how is it in place? It's by his authority. He's God of very God. He's the controller of the universe. He created it all. He's got the power. What he's basically saying is, hey, disciples, there are some things, or many things, we just don't need to know. You just don't need to know. You don't need to worry about that. No, I don't know if you're like me, but I often am guilty of reading the text, to listen to Jesus talk to the disciples, and I'm like, those stinking disciples doing it again. Always missing the ball, always questioning things, never quite get it. But I should probably look in the mirror a little bit more because we're the same, right? I mean, do you want to see evil and suffering ended? You want to see your sin and temptation, all the things you struggle with, you want to see those get rid of, right? We want to see truth and justice prevail. We want to see justice, biblical justice, justice finally being done enemies of God being destroyed. We want to see that happen. Wrongs righted, Jesus ruling. Man, I want shalom on earth. It is not wrong and it's good and right to say, come Lord Jesus. That's a good prayer. And we know those promises. I read the promises of what God says will come to those he has chosen as his own. The new heavens, the new earth sound wonderful. If we're honest, we also want to know when it will happen, don't we? In fact, we always have. I mean, you think just recently, you guys all remember the blood moons thing? If you don't, go look it up. Or don't go look it up. It's not worth it. But, um, <laughs> right? These blood moons are signs that when this thing happens and Jesus is going to show up on May 24th of whatever date and he doesn't come, right? I grew up in a, in a church tradition where we talked a lot about these like prophecy charts and they used to have these giant scrolls like spread across the front of the church and be like, okay, and you're tying the signs and like, oh, there's grasshoppers and locusts in, in Book of Revelation, so that probably is helicopters and they're going to come and like trying to figure out exactly, oh, this is happening, this is happening, so that means Jesus is coming like right now. And then like, how many Christians bought into that Mayan calendar that ends at 2012? I'm like, the guy's hand probably got tired of chiseling numbers. That's, are y'all, y'all remember the Y2K thing? I don't either. 
Uh, but like throughout history, we've done this, right? Imagine living in World War II. You think people then thought, man, Christ is coming back. The whole world's on fire. You go back a couple thousand years, you think the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire falling. You think those people thought, yeah, he's coming now. And we do it. But I think the reason, there's a lot of reasons, a couple that I think why God doesn't want us to worry about the when is because there's some danger there. And I get it. Life's hard. Things are hard. You want Jesus to come back when life's hard. When Jesus is coming, like, when you got, like, the best Christmas presents ever, you don't want Jesus to come back. You're like, I want to, this is great. You can stay, right? But when life's hard, you want, you want him to come back. But isn't there a little bit of arrogance that comes when you have, like, that secret knowledge when Jesus is coming? Like, I know he's coming back, and you don't. And we, but we can't read the signs and patterns well at all. I mean, everybody who's guessed when Jesus is coming back has gotten it wrong so far because you can't know. And, it's, and we're extremely limited in our sight of God's working out of world history. And the problem is, is we're in danger of hurting our own faith with this. I mean, how many people have been hurt because they thought the blood moons were the signs and somebody taught them that and then Jesus doesn't show up and like, well, maybe this isn't true. Maybe it's all fake. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. But here's the biggest reason, I think. And you'll see why as we expand this text a little bit more. But when you're looking at the clock, you're not looking at the people. When you're looking at the clock, you're not looking at the people. What are we called to do instead? Jesus says you're called to trust God's plan. You're called to trust God's plan. That means having an attitude of humility, like admitting that we have limited knowledge. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see God's working out of world history from his perspective. We can't. I can barely figure out what's going on with my day, let alone what's going on with world history. It's about knowing our place. God calls us to trust and obey, not to speculate on times and seasons. So to predict timing is playing in God's territory, and that, that's not a place I want to play. He's calling us to grow in our trust in him. Trust me, he says. Remember that the stories are true. The things he has said, the things that has happened is true. And we focus on what he has revealed for us to know. He has revealed everything we need to know. We don't need to go speculate about what we don't know. He's given us all we need to know. Here it is. The, the more you know who God is and what he's done in his heart, the more you will trust him. And that's what we're called to do. That's, that's the idea of being amazed. When we're amazed at what we do know, what God has revealed to us in, in the life of Christ, we'll grow in our trust in him. And we trust his plan and not worry about the signs of the times. So the first thing that'll happen is we'll trust God's plan. When we're, we'll trust the Father's plan. Second is this. We will witness with the Spirit's power. We will witness with the Spirit's power. I get that from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's keep reading. Jesus continues on. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus says, 
hey, you don't need to worry about the signs of the times. You don't need to worry about the times and seasons. Don't worry about the when. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, there's something else, but, right? You see that but, there's a transition. There's something more important here. And he says, you don't get that, but you do get power. This word power is the Greek dynamos. It's where we get the word dynamite from. It's this like expulsion. It's like, it's, it's the, the ability to accomplish what it's meant to accomplish. You will do this thing. That's the kind of power we're talking about. You will get it done. And that power comes from presence. The presence of what? The presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made. Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit. What's amazing about this is the Holy Spirit is God himself. What he's saying is God himself will empower you. God himself will empower you. This power functions kind of like, um, I was helping my boys finish a project on their treehouse yesterday. Um, I built them a treehouse last summer. Um, I say I, Adam, did most of the work. I helped. Uh, we built them a treehouse, and it needs a door on it because the wind and the snow just gets stuff in there, and I don't want it to get ruined. So I built the treehouse for them yesterday, or the door for the treehouse, and they had a drill. This is what the power is like. So we are simply tools, okay? We're like the drill. God is the user of the tool, okay? So he's the one drilling. God is also the battery in the drill. He's the power. Literally, all you are are just the drill. You're not the battery. You're not the person using it. You're just the drill. That's what we're talking about with power. God is doing this. You just get to be the tool. And he's saying, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. This is what, let me boil this down to what Jesus is saying to the disciples. This is incredible. He's saying, it is better to have the Spirit than to have the plan. It is better to have the Spirit than to have the plan. But all this is for a purpose. You get the Holy Spirit. It's not just power to do any old thing, right? Like, I'm going to, he's going to give me power to accomplish my dreams of being the next American Idol. Like, it's, not, it's not what he's saying. He said, you will be my witnesses. It's the power to be his witness. This idea of witness uh, is similar to what we know from court terminology, right? When somebody sits on the witness stand, right? They testify. They testify to what they have seen, to the things that happened before their eyes, right? This is true because I saw it actually happen. That's the witness that we're talking about. Specifically, testifying to who Christ is and what he's done, right? God's mission is being accomplished right before their eyes. They saw his death. They saw his resurrection. Jesus explained it this way in Luke 24. Adam talked about this a little bit last week. Verses 45 through 49, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, Here's what they testified to, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And here it is. You are witnesses of these things. That's what they're empowered to do. That's what their mission is. They are given the power to testify to that. And you notice that 
There's a promise and an identity here, right? There's a promise in the fact that you will. It's going to happen. It's not optional. It's going to happen. There's the promise and it's an identity. Like you, you are going to be a witness. It's not like you're going witnessing next Saturday at this event that we're organizing and you go door to door, right? No, you are a witness. It's their identity. And then there's the place. It says, you'll be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's reminding that, look, God is, God is bigger and more interested in just reconciling national Israel. His, his kingdom is not just a plot of land on the edge of the Mediterranean. His kingdom is broad. It's the whole world. He reigns over all things, and it's growing, and it'll continue to grow. Jesus taught this back in Luke 13. You're going to find that Luke pops up a lot here today. When he talked about the parable of the mustard seed, right? This tiny little mustard seed. He said the kingdom of God is like that, and you plant it in the ground. It's so small, but it grows to be this huge tree. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's less like a pebble that you throw in the water, and the ripples go out, and it gets smaller, right? It's more like a tidal wave that just grows and gets bigger as it, as it continues to move. That's the mission that God's on. That's his kingdom, and that's what we testify to. He's opening the eyes of the disciples so they're amazed at God's work. Because we testify, testify, I can talk, we testify about the things that captivate us, don't we? I mean, think about your kids at Christmas time. Or when you were a kid, right? You get like the big old toy. Oh, Toys R Us is dead. Sad times. We used to get the Toys R Us catalogs like this thick, right? Or even like the old Sears catalog and they have like that section that thick of toys. I mean, you get that thing, you open it up. Um, my boys just got, recently got um, a Lego catalog. And um, I'm so embarrassed that I'm using this as an illustration. It, they're obsessed with a Star Wars. <sighs> Star Wars, like I've tried to teach them they aren't learning. Uh, so I taught that, like, so they have the Star Wars um, Lego set they're obsessed with. Uh, Jude really wants the um, Boba, is that right? Boba Fett. Yeah, Pronounce it right. Boba not Boba Fett. Uh, Boba Fett Lego ship. It's like 100 bucks. And it, I'll tell you what, I have heard for like three weeks straight, every day, every single scheme he's been able to come up with to be able to obtain this Boba Fett ship. Lego ship, because he wants it. It's captivated his attention. So much so that he went up to his mom the other day, and he was like, oh, mom. And she's like, what? Oh, never mind. You already know. <laughs> and she's like, what? And he's like, I'm sorry. I just can't stop thinking about it, right? It's captivated. He's captivated by the ship. And so what does he do? He can't help but testify about it. That's what we do. So our response, right, should be we witness, we witness with the Spirit's power. Well, there's an encouragement and a challenge in this. The encouragement is this, right? The Holy Spirit, who is God himself, gives you the power, right? You don't do it on your own. You're not on your, you don't go out by yourself. It's Holy Spirit's work. It's not dependent on you. You don't save people. That's God's work. You just testify to what God is doing, what God has done through Jesus Christ. What's amazing, if you think about this, we've seen even more than the disciples. Did you know that? 
You want to know how I know? Because for 2,000 years, we can look back and see what Christ has accomplished. Do you ever stop to consider all that God has done through the ages? Or are you a lot like me? You just look at the 36 years of your life and you're like, eh, he didn't meet this expectation or he didn't meet this expectation, so he's not that great. You get your eyes up and look at all that God has accomplished. We've seen, the disciples saw this much, and as we've, as time has gone on, God has right, completed scripture, and we can see that all that God has done is he fulfills his promises of expanding his kingdom. That's why I told you the stories at the beginning of this message. God is moving. But there's a challenge. And the challenge is we have to, we have to, testify. We have to be witnesses. This is what's staggering to me. In, in, we live in a news-obsessed culture. I mean, how many, days do, how many times a day do you get notifications on your phone or your computer of some breaking news? You can turn on the TV right now and switch to like a dozen different channels that have breaking news 24-7. We are a culture obsessed with news all the time. And what's staggering to me is how reluctant we are to share the greatest news of all time. Every headline from every Christian should be, the Son of God died and rose again and is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back and you can be saved. That should be the news. That is breaking news 24-7. God loves, forgives sin. And we are reluctant to say that? I mean, the gospel at its core, right? The gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. And all we're called to is just to testify to that. Just tell it. So I have to ask you, do you witness to what you've seen and heard? Because the reality is this. If you aren't amazed... and you don't really know the whole gospel, or you don't really believe it. I'll say that again. If, if we aren't amazed, then we don't really know the whole gospel, or we don't really believe it. And maybe we've forgotten how earth-shattering, life-changing the gospel is. That a man really rose from the dead, and he's coming back. Maybe you say, I don't, I don't know how to witness. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. You say that. You knew enough to believe, right? What, what were you told? What, did, what captured your heart? And just share that. And we, do, we all need to grow in this, but remember, you have the Holy Spirit in you because it's not your work. You're just called to say, this is what I've seen. This is what I know. So the second thing that happens when we're amazed is we witness with the Spirit's power. The last is this. We work until the sun's return. We work until the sun's return. Let's keep reading. Back in our text, verse 9, uh, Luke goes on and says, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here we have what we, what we call Christ's ascension. Now, throughout history, church history, we often actually, uh, the church has often celebrated Ascension Day. For whatever reason, we've kind of forgotten that, but it's actually on the church calendar. If you go find a liturgical church calendar, it'll talk about Ascension Day because this is a pretty big deal. Let me explain a little bit of the picture that Luke is painting here. Now, you might be thinking the Ascension uh, kind of like some David Blaine trick where like, you're levitating up into the sky in, like some fluffy cloud right? Um, or maybe, like, I grew up in Sunday school with flannel graphs, and, like, there's this picture of Jesus on a flannel graph. He's, like, all in white, and his hands are like this, and he's, like, just kind of, floating. why do all the pictures of Jesus have him like this? Like, do you, do you know anybody who walks around like this all the time? I, I don't, unless you're getting arrested, right? Like, um, but that, I don't think that's what's going on here. Now, we don't know 100% sure, because he doesn't fill in all the details, but if you chase, trace the picture of clouds, Throughout the Bible, you'll see something very interesting. Think back to Mount Sinai, right? And there, Moses went up onto the top of the mountain, and what did he go up into? A cloud. You guys remember what that cloud was like? Thunder, lightning. It was so scary that at the base of the mountain, everybody was freaking out. They had like a royal meltdown because Moses was up on a mountain and a bunch of clouds, right? Or you think about um, in the tabernacle. There's a cloud that comes into the Holy of Holies, and if the high priest doesn't do everything exactly right and he walks into the Holy of Holies, guess what happens? It's a pretty big deal. Or think about the transfiguration, right? When James, John, and Peter, right, they go up onto the mountain with Jesus and they see Christ transfigured and guess where they see him transfigured? In a cloud. I don't think that's coincidental. There's a couple other clues here. If you look at verses 10 and 11, I want you right now, real quick, read them. And tell me how many times the word heaven is mentioned. Shout it out when you know. First one gets a prize. Say it. Four. You get a prize. It's air high five. There you go. There's your prize. Really worth something. Right? Four times. And then last is this. It says, all of a sudden, two men in white robes appear. Who do you think those guys are? angels. Think back through the Bible where you see two angels with heaven show up at the tabernacle, right? Before it enters into the throne room where God is. What you see here is Jesus ascending into the presence of God, and it's this massive event. I believe what, what the disciples are witnessing is this thundercloud, right? You think about standing in a thunderstorm, a little, little intense, right? We have tornadoes here in Indiana. It gets pretty crazy. And Jesus ascends into this massive fury of heaven breaking down into earth. And Luke 24 talks about the disciples' response. What do they do? Fall on their face and worship. Wouldn't you? And then it leaves, and they're caught staring at the sky. Wouldn't you? What did I just see? That's what's going on here. That's the ascension that Jesus is ascending into this glory cloud of heaven breaking into earth to be seated at the right hand of God. And the angels show up and say to him, what? They give him some instructions. And they, but first they say, what are you still doing here, right? 
What are you looking up for? I'd be like, uh, you, you see that too? <laughs> but essentially they say, look, you guys got work to do. Get busy, go. Don't stand around looking up. Why? Because they are anticipate, they're to anticipate Christ's return. They say that Jesus is coming back the same way he went. Think about that. So he goes up into this massive glory cloud, right? It means that he's coming back that same way, meaning heaven is going to come back and break into earth. And if you're a disciple and you know your Old Testament and you're putting the pieces together, you should immediately think of something like Isaiah 19 or Daniel 7. Let me read to you Daniel 7 for you so you don't think I'm just making stuff up because I don't like to make things up. Sometimes I do. But now when it comes to the Bible, verse 13, Daniel 7, 13, check this out. Daniel is given a vision of heaven in the future. And he writes what he saw and he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the what? Clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. Guess who refers to himself as the son of man all the time? Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, who is God, and was presented before him. And let me pause. A few verses earlier, it talks about the Ancient of Days. It talks about the Ancient of Days is executing judgment. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does some of that language sound familiar? Luke is not playing around here. This is all on purpose because what he wants you to understand and what these angels wanted the disciples to understand is Christ is returning in judgment in a blaze of glory to rid the world of sin, so you better get busy. I think often, for me personally, and I think for the church in general, is this is part of the gospel we forget. Because listen, if Jesus is not on his throne given dominion, the enemies of God still rule. Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is part of the gospel that sin will be destroyed, including Satan and the principalities and powers of the air and the earth that are standing in obstinance to God. So Jesus comes, and here we see Jesus taking his rightful place, receiving dominion and power over all. The writer of Hebrews got it wrote it this way in Hebrews 1.3, he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, ready for this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what's happening right here, and the disciples saw it, and they were amazed See, God's mission is moving forward. forward. Jesus is reigning as king. And he's not there. He's not, right? We're living already, not yet. So he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he's not completely reigning over everything. How do we know? Because sin is still running rampant. But one day he's going to return. And the call until then is every man, woman, and child from every tribe, nation, and tongue is called to repent of their sin, repent of their rebellion against God, and give loyalty to the true king. Repent of their sin. Because that's what sin is, is rebellion. Forsake your allegiance to yourself, to your sin, to your false idols that don't satisfy, that don't fill you up. Return to your king who loves you and gave himself for you. And this is their motivation to go. 
their motivation to move. Listen, church, Jesus will return in a cloud again as the Son of Man to judge the earth. That should move us. So what do we do? We work. We work until the Son's return. It looks like this. I want you to write this down. It looks like looking outward with a sense of urgency and then witness to the call to repentance. I say look outward because there is for sure a place to stand in awe and worship. Remember when Jesus went to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house and Martha was off busy working and, Mary, and Martha was like, Mary, or Jesus, Mary's not helping. And, and Jesus commended Mary. He said, she's here with me. There's a place to worship. There's a time for worship, to stand in awe. But we're also called to gaze outward. The angels said, this interesting phrase, right? He said, they said, men of Galilee. Very specific. Why would they say that? Let's say to you this morning, men and women of Fort Wayne. Men and women of Fort Wayne. Be here now. This is where God is working. This is where he's called you to. See, if your Christian life is just mountaintop Sunday morning experiences and it doesn't spill over into the rest of your life, then you've missed the whole point. The point isn't just to stay here in this building, the, the four of us, us four and no more. It's to experience what we experience here and then go tell others what God is doing here. The people's lives are being changed. So we look outward and we look with a sense of urgency, Right? Time is of the essence. Christ could return today. Let me say that again. Christ could return today. And don't be fooled by the passage of time. Don't think that 2,000 years is slow to God. It's not because he's negligent or forgetful or lazy. In fact, Peter tells us it's an act of grace. He's given us more time. Aren't you glad that God gave you more time? that waited long enough so you could believe? Yes. He's waiting for more to believe. Don't let that time be wasted. And we witness the call to repentance. And I get it's not a popular message. A God of judgment, a command to repent, but it's an act of love because it's what people need. Judgment is coming to those you and I know and love who haven't believed. Listen, church, judgment is coming to those you and I know and love but haven't believed. And what will we do about it? I don't know about you, but I've seen too much. I've seen too much of God's work to deny that he's working, that he's still on the move. Baptism Sundays, I love it. I remember just a few weeks ago hearing Mikhail's testimony when he was here about God saving him miraculously from a life of addiction and sin. I want to see more of that. Hearing Makaria, who grew up as a pastor's daughter, finally getting it, God opening her eyes to believe the truth of the gospel. I want to see more of that. 
I want to see suburban housewives. I want to see farmers. I want to see plumbers. I want to see call center workers. I want to see your friends, your neighbors come to be amazed at what God is doing, that his kingdom is coming, that people are being saved and he's changing lives. I want to see it through redemption. We've all seen too much to not say something. I'm going to close with this. This is just a short stanza from a song called I've Seen Too Much by Andrew Peterson, written from the perspective of the disciples. Just moments like this. He says this, I've seen too many faces all shining like the sun. I've seen too many skies on fire like the face of the Holy One. I've seen too many eyes wide open that once were so blind, all burning with the beauty of the same love the same love that opened mine. Will we testify? Will we witness? Will we be amazed at what God's doing? I hope so. Let's pray. God, we love you. You have done an amazing work in our lives, in history, and your work isn't done. Your work is going forward. It's a a tidal wave. Your mission is being accomplished. You are establishing your kingdom. Christ will finally reign. God, and we want those we love to be wrapped up in that amazing love of forgiveness and being part of what you're doing. I pray that this church, each of us individually and as a a group, as a body, we would witness and testify to the things we've seen and heard of what you're doing. May you use us even this week. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, church, you are loved.